Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Sunday, February 13th, Septuagesima Sunday in the old calendar. That means 70 days before Easter. So even before Lent hits, we are counting down towards the great feast on the new calendar, sixth Sunday of ordinary time, and on the sporting calendar, Super Bowl Sunday. I'm sure uh, for many people, although not you, dear listener of this podcast. That third one is the most important thing today of all. Uh, now, as for me, uh, I have not seen the Super Bowl. I'm not even sure what that is. Some kind of a, an eating uh, utensil or some kind of a, you know, especially large salad uh, container. I'm not clear exactly on the details of this whole Super Bowl thing. Just kidding. Uh, but no, I really didn't see it. <laughs> so I don't know what happened today or who won, but I know one of my professors at least was very, very excited that uh, his team, the Cincinnati Bengals, made it to the Super Bowl. He wore his uh, jersey to class two weeks ago for the playoff game. And then since they made it through, he wore it again on Friday. And he said, what can I say? My team won. Last time, <laughs> last Friday I wore this jersey, the team won. Now I have to wear it again. <laughs> little uh, good old-fashioned superstition there. <laughs> so, uh, if any of you enjoyed the delights of watching the, today's Super Bowl, I hope that whichever team you supported uh, played admirably. As for me, I spent today mostly catching up on work, which I don't like to do on Sundays. However, yesterday, uh, we hosted a conference of the Catholic Medical Association here at the seminary, which took up a good portion of the day. Also, for the remainder of the day, I was working feverishly on my thesis. I had promised my advisor that I would send him a complete draft of the first section by the end of the week. And so I spent about seven hours all told yesterday, most of it in a single chunk at the end of the day. <laughs> I was up very late, but I did manage to get it finished and sent to him before midnight. So 26 pages uh, I sent off for him to review. They're not completely like polished and perfect. Um, there are still, especially towards the end of that section, you know, I know I still have to go back through and insert some more citations and sources and just generally clean it up a little bit more. But I got it at least to the point that I was confident submitting it to him for him to review. So we're gonna meet up sometime in the coming week or two uh, to go over it together. and uh, But, you know, this is a milestone. It's very good. The minimum page requirement for the thesis is 60 pages. As I said, I've completed 26 uh, and submitted 26. And actually, I'm at, I don't know exactly how far I am into the next section yet, but somewhere between 5 and 10 pages um, I've got written. And so, yeah, if, depending on how you, exactly you slice it, I'm past the halfway mark. Um, on the thesis, which feels pretty good. Now, um, I can't slow down. <laughs> I have to keep going, you know, at this pace um, if I'm hoping to get it done before the end of the semester, which I still am. Done in the sense of 
you know, complete like this first section is complete, not like every I is dotted, every T is crossed, but at least have, um, you know, have the whole thing on, on paper from the introduction through the conclusion with then the idea being over the summer and in the next academic year, I can sort of leisurely edit, revise, polish, um, perfect it and defend it. So that's anyway, that's my hope. Please keep praying for divine inspiration, for the grace, especially of perseverance. Um, but it, it's good. You know, I, I left off writing the introduction um, until I had already finished the whole first section. So a big part of my time yesterday was going back and actually writing um, a worthy introduction and also a section on method um, in which I basically outlined the four parts of the thesis. So I'll give you a preview. Since you're listening to this podcast, I expect you might be interested in this topic. So the thesis is on the promise of obedience, which diocesan priests make uh, before ordination to the diaconate. It's one of six promises, but the three big ones, of course, are uh, celibacy, um, to pray the liturgy of the hours daily for the good of the church, and respect and obedience for the diocesan bishop and his successors. So um, <laughs> I was just texting a friend of mine earlier today who's doing his master's thesis at Mount Angel on the topic of the liturgy of the hours. And I said, bro, did you realize that uh, we're, we're each writing on one of the promises that we're about to make in a few months. And he said, oh yeah, let me know if you find someone else who's writing on celibacy. <laughs> and we'll have all the bases covered. Well, I haven't found that person yet. But nonetheless, obedience is a very pertinent topic. Um, of course, for me personally and my classmates, as we prepare to take this promise. But it's also, um, you know, in a way it's very timely. There's a lot of cases that have come up over the last couple of years where priests, um, for various reasons, are placed in a conflict of conscience between the command of their superior, the diocesan bishop, and uh, what their conscience obliges them to do. Or in some cases, the command of the bishop runs co contrary or counter to either universal ecclesial law, natural law, divine law, uh, and so then, what is the cleric to do in that case? So, um, that, that's basically my impetus for writing the thesis. It's a pastoral motivation. I want to be able to say, okay, what's the theological grounds for the promise of obedience? Um, because it's not just, you know, it's not just a tool for the well-being, the, um, you know, good order of the church to preserve... Um, merely social goods, you know. So it, it, what I mean to say by that is that, wow, I just looked up and there's a huge ring around the moon. Sorry, I got distracted. I'm recording this late at night and that is very striking. Beautiful. Anyway, um, obedience in the church is uh, a different kind of a thing than obedience, for example, in the military. Um, Maybe that's obvious, maybe not, but you know, we can just draw out the parallels. Military obedience is um, basically uh, to preserve a social good, which it's to serve the purpose of the institution. So it's a social and an institutional good in service of the mission. But priestly obedience, while there is that element to it, also has a profound theological depth. In fact, um, you might say that obedience is the manner par excellence 
by which the priest imitates Christ. And so the first section of my thesis is just drawing out that theological basis, especially from the epistle to the Hebrews, which um, really unpacks <laughs> in a beautiful and profound way um, the role of Christ, the Son of the Father, as the eternal high priest who is obedient unto death. And as the epistle says in one memorable verse, um, Christ, although he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. So there's a lot of very interesting connections to make there um, between these related concepts. Obedience, priesthood, sacrifice, redemption, and behind it all really sonship. Um, yeah, so I could, I could go on talking about that for quite a long time, but if you want to hear more, you'll just have to read the paper once I finish it. <laughs> anyway, suffice to say, that's part one. What are the theological roots of obedience, the foundation for obedience? Um, yeah, within Christ, within the Holy Trinity, within the whole economy of salvation um, and God's plan for the salvation of man. All right, then section two. Section two deals with the ecclesial mediation of obedience. So what that means is, okay, Christ is perfectly obedient to the Father. So you can draw a clear line of analogy. We as Christians are, we participate in Christ through baptism, through the sacraments, through the life of grace. So therefore, as the Son is obedient to the Father, so we who are sons and daughters in the Son must also be obedient to the Father. That's clear enough. But then the church gets introduced into the middle of all of that. And uh, the question becomes, okay, how is our obedience to God mediated through human beings, through human institutions? So for that section, and, and, and of course not just through any human institution, but preeminently through the church, which is actually a divine institution, which also has a uh, human element, much like Christ is a divine person who assumes a human nature. The church also exists in these two aspects, human and divine. So part two of the thesis is dealing with that question, drawing especially on the thought of St. Ignatius of Antioch, a first century bishop of the church, who in his seven letters to the churches of the Near East um, has quite a profound, uh, compact and concise, but profound theology of obedience. Um, he's constantly exhorting the churches to obey their bishops. And it's based on a theological concept of, two concepts really, of participation in Christ and of representation. So what does representation mean? And that's part two of the thesis. Also drawn in St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, where he talks about the mutual obedience due between husbands and wives. That's also representational. In other words, we owe obedience to human beings in certain contexts, in certain states of life, uh, because within the boundaries of that state of life or of that relationship, the other person represents in some way God. Uh, and so the, the relationship and the representation is both the cause of the obedience and inherently limits the obedience. The obedience is grounded within the exigencies of that representation. So for example, in Ephesians, um, you know, the, there's that, the very, the very last instruction that St. Paul gives is, husbands, love your wives so that wives, you might obey your husbands. 
It's not often translated that way, but the Greek is quite clear. The husbands are given a direct imperative command. Love your wives the way that Christ loves the church, you know, shedding, shedding your blood for her, uh, laying down your life for her, so that you wives, you might obey the husband. And the point is, if the husband is loving with the kind of Christ-like love, which is absolutely self-sacrificial, self-surrendering, that in a way creates a space within the relationship um, in which the wife now may surrender herself to the husband, the way that the church surrenders herself to Christ, her head. So the husband goes first, he creates room by giving of himself in a, an utterly sacrificial, self-forgetful, self-surrendering way. And thereby, he, he creates the possibility, he makes room, leaves space for the wife to respond. Uh, and her response looks like basically obedience. So you can draw an analogy between priests and bishops. St. Ignatius of Antioch says the bishop represents God the Father. The priest stands in the place of Christ in a preeminent way. And so the bishop must represent God the Father. Uh, and the priest then is to obey as Christ the Son. Then the third part of the thesis is going to deal with, uh, I haven't even begun writing this yet, but it's going to deal directly with the promise. That's going to rely a lot on St. Thomas Aquinas, who has a, um, a question with five articles on obedience in the Summa. Um, so distinguishing between the promise of obedience and the vow that religious take, because they are different and the difference is actually very important. And also developing um, an adequate, how shall I say this? Um, an adequate understanding of what the promise entails. And so that will involve also um, dismissing or discrediting certain false ideas of obedience, which are unfortunately common, um, stemming, I would say, from St. Ignatius of Loyola. Well, not him so much specifically, but the Jesuit tradition of obedience, which, for example, um, in one source says that the perfect obedience is to be like a corpse dragged around by your superior. Um, the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the less that the intellect and will are involved, the better. You should almost be like a puppet or a robot programmed by your superior. Well, that's actually uh, at least, well, I'll say it this way, that's certainly not the perspective of obedience which I am writing about in this thesis. I'm writing about an obedience which imitates Christ, and Christ was not a puppet of the Father by any means. Christ had the full use of all of his human faculties, intellect, will, the passions, everything, and freely submitted them all to the Father out of love in a relationship of filial trust, which then produces obedience as a disposition. So that's the third part, basically, is writing about that and excluding some false notions. And then finally, the fourth part is case studies. So looking at hypothetical cases, but based on real issues, um, in which obedience becomes difficult for one reason or another, and trying to provide a framework based on all of this theological foundation and, and um, background and argumentation a framework for discerning um, what are the requirements of obedience and what are the limits of obedience intrinsically. Um, 
you know, in, in other words, not simply based on um, circumstances or what do I feel like doing today, <laughs> but no, what does the promise actually entail? What is its scope and what are its boundaries? So that's uh, basically the thesis. As I said, I've finished the first section, more or less, and I'm uh, maybe a third, not quite halfway through the second section at the moment. So please do keep it in your prayers. And um, if you have suggestions or feedback or questions about it or anything like that, feel free to send them my way. And I will do all that I can to incorporate those things into my ongoing research and writing. All right, so that's about it for me at the moment. Um, of course, this coming week, this week, I should say, I'm preparing to receive candidacy for holy orders on Wednesday. And I've got uh, my mom coming to visit and um, my vocation director and some other guests as well. Uh, so please keep me in your prayers this week, not only for the thesis stuff, but as I receive this uh, last step before diaconate ordination. All right, let's jump over and talk for a few minutes here about Dickens and the uh, most recent section we've read of the Pickwick Papers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. God bless us, everyone. What the dickens? Well, I'm slowly catching up on the Pickwick Papers, and I must say, uh, these more recent chapters I've enjoyed far more uh, than I, I enjoyed the earlier ones. It seems like the narrative is starting to go somewhere, like Dickens has picked up on a plot <laughs> and intends to follow it through to the end. Um, in particular, although, uh, uh, I almost said Dickens, but Pickwick and friends have traveled around a bit to different places, Bath and so on. Um, in the most recent chapter, which I'm up to now, Pickwick has been thrown into prison. <laughs> He's in a debtor's prison, Fleet, uh, Fleet Street prison, I think, in London. And there's a whole complicated plot involved. Um, the, uh, the seed for which was sown much earlier in the story, way back when Pickwick hired Mr. Samuel Weller as his manservant. If, you, if you've been reading along, you might remember, there was this odd little scene where Pickwick was in uh, the, the living room of his landlady, Mrs. Bardell, and they had a humorous misunderstanding where Pickwick is <laughs> he's building up to telling her that he's going to hire a servant. But he's doing it in this ambiguous way where he's sort of commenting obliquely about how lonely it must be around the house when he's not there and oh how much she would love to have another pair of hands around and it would be good for her little son as well to have a man around the house and mrs bardell thinks he's going to propose marriage <laughs> and so of course mr pickwick has no idea what she's thinking even though it's painfully obvious and the scene ends with her leaping into his arms um, <laughs> And I think she faints dead away or something. And then all Pickwick's friends come in, of course, right at that moment and see her. Um, he's sitting in a chair, I think, and holding her there. And she's sort of like comatose or weeping or something because of her shock at the whole situation. 
So that was just an aside, or so it seemed. But Dickens has now woven that into the narrative. Mrs. Bardell ends up suing Mr. Pickwick for a wrongful breach of their engagement. <laughs> because she still understands him to have been proposing marriage. And then he goes off and uh, she ne never hears from him again over all these months. So she files a lawsuit. And uh, we follow that for several chapters. And there's, uh, there's legal proceedings and interesting, you know, uh, um, <laughs> escapades related to that. But in the end, Pickwick is uh, found guilty of breaking his marriage contract with her. And he's ordered to pay a certain amount of money to her, um, as well as to her lawyers, Dodson and Fogg, who are this slimy uh, <laughs> law firm. And uh, Pickwick refuses to pay. He stands on it as a matter of principle. So they go on traveling for a while until they end up getting, well, he ends up getting arrested. A writ has been issued against him. And he's taken now to debtor's prison. And he intends to stay there indefinitely because he doesn't want a penny of his money to go wrongfully to, well, Mrs. Bardell, but more to the point, to Dodson and Fogg. <laughs> These two lawyers who are sort of, at least he sees them, and it seems that they are preying upon the weak and the vulnerable and the innocent, in fact, to line their own pockets. So he's prepared to stay in the prison um, the rest of his life, if need be. He's not going to cough up a single pound. Um, and so that's where we are right now. And uh, the interesting thing is, in the prison, Pickwick has just met Mr. Alfred Jingle, that... Uh, old nemesis of Pickwick and friends from earlier chapters, who once was so haughty and proud and smug and cunning, and now he is, he's landed himself in prison. He's had to pawn almost all of his possessions for food. He has nothing left now to sell, and he's starving away and miserable. And his servant also is there with him, whose name I forget. So nothing has come of that yet, but uh, it seems that's where Dickens is going with the plot. He's got Pickwick and Jingle, these two sort of mortal enemies, <laughs> there together in the debtor's prison. And, uh, it remains to be seen what's going to happen next. But um, the interesting thing I was going to comment on this week is that Mr. Samuel Weller, Pickwick's faithful servant, uh, insists on remaining there in the prison with him. And so... Uh, you know, at first, after Pickwick gets settled, he has his own room in the prison, and it, it sounds, you know, fairly comfortable, <laughs> really. You can rent out your own room, and uh, you can rent furnishings, and you, you have your private sort of apartment, and you can send people out to do shopping for you and bring things back. I mean, prison doesn't sound too different from seminary. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, though, about there's an episode of The Office where uh, they hire a former convict and he's telling everybody about what life was like in prison. All the office workers start to say, hey, prison sounds better than working at Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> anyway, that's off topic. So Pigwick is there in the prison. At first he tries to send Mr. Sam Weller away, saying this is no place for a young man. And it seems absurd for a gentleman to have his manservant attend him in prison. You can go and... Uh, serve one of my friends, I'll keep paying your salary, and if I ever get out, then you can return to my service immediately. Well, Sam doesn't like this at all. Pigwick insists, so Sam storms off, 
and uh, it's most unlike him to do that. He doesn't, he doesn't even say goodbye. He just storms off. So we wonder what's going to happen next. And he goes in the very next chapter and meets up with his father, this, uh, I think also Samuel Weller Sr., this funny, funny guy. I don't know if I commented on him last week or not, but we'll put a pin in that for the moment. And so as I read this chapter, I was thinking, well, surely he's going to hatch some kind of harebrained scheme to get Pickwick out of prison. And it's going to work by some kind of miraculous coincidence of events, you know, because that seems to be the normal course of things so far in the Pickwick papers is Pickwick gets himself into a sticky situation. Uh, He sort of bumbles into it. And then he bumbles right out again, <laughs> either by his own sort of innocence and naivete or by an unlikely circumstance hatched by one of his friends or something. So I figured that's what was going to happen. And it, indeed, it seemed at first like that was what was going to happen because Sam talked to his dad. His dad had the idea of smuggling Mr. Pickwick out dressed as a washerwoman or something like that. But then I was actually surprised when Sam hatches this scheme instead to get himself arrested, he asks to borrow some money from his dad and then has his, his father go and file a writ of arrest against him, basically saying that his son owed him 25 pounds and wouldn't pay up, blah, blah, blah. And so Sam gets arrested. Um, and there's the, it, it's, it's purely a scheme between father and son. And as they make their way to the jail, there's a whole crowd of friends around them and they're all chanting and hooting and hollering and laughing and they stop for drinks on the way. And then Sam gets thrown into prison, a Fleet Street prison, and goes at once to Pickwick's apartment and announces that he has been arrested as well. And so Pickwick (laughs) is very touched by this, although he meant for Sam to uh, go away and not be cooped up there with him indefinitely. Of course, he's very touched by this sacrifice on the part of his servant. And uh, there's, I I don't have exactly the quote here, but there's a beautiful quote uh, right at the moment that Sam reveals he's been arrested too. The Mr. Pickwick is just left speechless. And he couldn't couldn't be angry or or, uh, rebuke his servant because of the depth of feeling which welled up in his heart um, at this noble gesture of loyalty and affection. And so that's about where I am so far in the Pickwick papers. But uh, I wanted to just focus in on that moment and on that, um, well, let's not call it simply a gesture, on that sacrifice of Sam Weller on behalf of Mr. Pickwick. Now, uh, Pickwick, um, if you remember, if you've been reading along, Pickwick chose to hire Sam when he met him in London. Uh, Sam was working as a bootsman cleaning people's boots in a hotel when Pickwick and friends arrived in pursuit of Mr. Alfred Jingle and uh, (laughs) the uh, elderly aunt from Dingley Dell, I forget her name, but he had absconded with her. They eloped together when he was um, aiming to uh, rob her of her fortune. So they're in hot pursuit when they meet Sam Weller. And then Sam, of course, is the servant whom uh, Pickwick is talking about when he has that conversation with Mrs. Bardell about hiring a manservant. And Sam has gone along with them ever since on all these adventures. He always has a, uh, (laughs) a, um, well, (laughs) 
a funny aside or interjection. Often it's kind of a common expression of speech, but he'll, he'll put a spin on it that leaves you um, feeling like the carpet's been pulled out from under you. Um, an example from earlier today that I read, Sam said, um, uh, when uh, Mr. Winkle visited and for some reason he's unaccountably very sad, um, Sam said, now then, sir, away with melancholy, as the schoolboy said when his teacher passed away. <laughs> Apologies for the terrible accent. <laughs> so he's always got things like that. Something, something, as such and such said. He's uh, always comfortable in any situation, it seems. He always sort of has this implacable calm about him, no matter who he's dealing with. Um, the more high and mighty the person is, it seems like the cooler that Sam Weller becomes in response. And he's constantly confounding people who try to um, sort of make a show of their power or dignity or wealth or something and, and make him sort of feel degraded as a result. He um, confounds those efforts by simply refusing to be ashamed. <laughs> he's constantly, whatever situation, wherever he may go, he's simply Sam. And therefore, once he arrives in the prison and makes his, his bed there, um, Dickens says that Sam at once was quite as much at home in Fleet Street Prison as if he'd lived there his whole life. And indeed, three generations of his family <laughs> had been raised and died there as well. So this is Sam Weller, this noble character. I believe Chesterton said in his study of Dickens that Sam is one of the finest characters Dickens ever produced. And certainly he is a standout amongst the characters of the Pickwick Papers, um, perhaps even overshadowing Pickwick himself. Um, but what I, I, I was really struck by uh, in these most recent chapters is Pickwick elevated Sam in a certain sense um, from his humble job as a boot cleaner to now being a gentleman's gentleman, <laughs> the servant of a gentleman, bringing him around on all these adventures all around the country and so on and so forth. And uh, Sam um, is truly devoted to Mr. Pickwick as a master, a servant to a master. So theirs is not a relationship uh, among equals. They're not friends, per se, the way that Pickwick and Winkle and um, Tupman and Snodgrass are friends, a society of equals from the Pickwick Club. No, it's a relationship clearly of master and servant, although Pickwick does give Sam uh, quite an extraordinary amount of leeway and freedom to say and do as he wills. So there is also a kind of a uh, something of friendship in the service relationship that they have. But this sacrifice of Sam, above all, makes it clear to us as readers and in the story to Pickwick as a character that for Sam, the relationship is not merely one of employment. It's not merely a matter of, you know, earning wages, getting to see the, a bit more of the world, go to interesting places. It's not just a a job for him. It really is a relationship to which he is committed and uh, for which he's willing to basically give away everything, 
else that he has. You know, um, one definition of sacrifice that I like very much. Um, the Latin root of sacrifice is sacrum facere, which means to make something holy. Sacrum is holy and facere is to make. So sacrum facere, sacrifice to make something holy. But the definition that I really like based on that um, is from one of our professors, Father Sam Weber, who says, to sacrifice is to, get, is to make something holy by giving it away for love. To make something holy by giving it away for love. Thus, just to circle back to the thesis for a second, because that's the center of gravity for my thoughts right now, Christ's obedience to the Father is a true sacrifice because out of love, the love of a son for a father, out of filial love, Christ gives away his freedom in a certain sense. He gives away his free will, um, his intellect, all his human powers and faculties which he has assumed. He gives them to the Father joyfully in an act of utter self-surrender without remainder inspired and motivated by love. And so, uh, returning to the Pickwick Papers now, what we see Sam Weller do as he uh, allows himself to be arrested, not only allows it but engineers it, is an act of noble sacrifice with no other aim than to remain with his master as long as he must, as long as Mr. Pickwick is to remain in Fleet Street Prison so his servant Sam Weller will remain there by his side. It's not as if he can do anything. <laughs> In fact, Mr. Pickwick says, they're discussing it some more after Sam reveals he's been arrested, and uh, they, their feelings have kind of calmed down. And uh, Mr. Pickwick says, you know, you must realize you would be much more useful to me if you were still free to go outside the walls and do things out in the world. So it's not as if Sam can really do anything for his master there. All that he can do is remain with him. And for me, this evokes the uh, wonderful teaching of St. Paul, uh, you know, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Very often, that's all that we can do. Um, yeah, it's, it's often the case in pastoral ministry that you simply can't do anything to help somebody other than, well, pray for them, which, look, that's something um, very significant, something very important, entrusting their cares to the Lord and, uh, yeah, invoking the Lord's blessing upon them as, as only a priest can do. But other than prayer, which is always within our, uh, our, uh, our toolkit, <laughs> so to speak, um, very often there's nothing we can do for people who are suffering than simply to be with them and to condole with them, to weep with those who weep. Yet that in itself is something powerful. And uh, I had occasion to experience that many times over pastoral year. I think of uh, when uh, there were all the wildfire evacuations in Eugene very soon after I arrived at my parish placement. And uh, the pastor and I went out there every morning for a week to visit the refugees in their encampment at uh, Springfield High School. And uh, walking among the people, most of whom were in shock, especially the first day 
um, striking up a few conversations here and there, um, people in all different sorts of emotional states. Um, but what became clear to me over time as we visited these refugees there was that it really didn't matter what Father Ron or I had to say, or even if we said anything, we would listen to those who wanted to speak. We would certainly converse with those who wanted to converse, pray with those who wanted to pray. But what was most important, as Father Ron said, is that everyone sees that the church is there. And because we are there, they know God is there. God is with them. God is with them. Simply by our presence, walking around wearing our clerics, people uh, were reminded that God is with them. And we got different kinds of reactions to that. Some people were angry at God, understandably, and we bore some of the brunt of that anger. Others uh, were moved to tears, some spontaneously thanking us and praying with us. Um, yeah, I was moved by some of the expressions of faith, a young couple who lost everything. And as soon as I began speaking to them, the young man with tears coming from his eyes said, we thank God that we're alive and we're together. I also think of uh, sitting with a friend recently who lost a family member. And uh, for a long time, I sat with him and had nothing to say. Few, maybe little noises of consolation here or there, murmured words. After hours, after probably two hours, um, we prayed together, but for most of, the, of that time, um, I was in silence, and he was sharing some stories, and in other times we were both in silence. So all of this to say that there's a profound, a profound value simply in being with one who we love, um, who is in suffering. If there's nothing we can do to resolve it, Nonetheless, there's a profound value and a gift, a gift of self, when we simply remain with them in the suffering. And uh, this is what our Lord does with us. Now, He has power, as the psalmist says, to do all He wills. And Christ, when He comes to earth uh, on His saving mission of love, he comes with power to destroy sin and death forever, which indeed he does, to conquer evil, to drive forth the evil one from the world, to redeem mankind, to restore our lost sonship, and to uh, reunite us to God the Father through himself. And he accomplishes all he wills in the glorious sacrifice of Calvary. Nonetheless, uh, <laughs> if if we can bracket off the glories of Christ's victory and his saving mission just for a moment, we can also see that beneath that, at least this is what many of the church fathers say, such as St. Bonaventure, beneath that, there is simply the desire of the lover to be with his beloved. And we don't have to understand that in a romantic way, um, such that we can also apply the same language to Sam Weller and Mr. Pickwick. Um, the, the characteristic of love is simply the desire to be with the object of one's love. Love tends toward union. Love tends toward being with. And so God who loves us naturally wants to come and be with us, to dwell with us. And that is the movement which underlies the incarnation. 
um, God becomes man. Yes, to save mankind. But a question the fathers will ask is, well, even if man had not sinned, would God have become incarnate? Some say yes, some say no. Uh, it's not a settled doctrinal question, but personally, I will say, I think the answer is yes, because of the love of God for mankind. I think that the incarnation was always a part of the eternal plan of God. As in the, uh, the formula of St. Irenaeus, um, God becomes man so that man might become God. Well, God intended from all eternity to unite us to himself. Um, that's part of our original vocation. We're made for union with God. Therefore, at least I believe, God also in eternally intended to unite himself to us, taking on our nature so that he might elevate us and unite us with himself. Anyway, this is all very high theology. <laughs> the point I really wanted to make here is simply to linger for a moment in admiration of the character of Sam Weller and of the sacrifice that he makes, um, entering into the depths of Fleet Street Prison with his master, Mr. Pickwick, uh, for no other purpose than to suffer alongside him until such time as they might both be released. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Well, this will be a short theology segment because I've basically been talking theology the whole time. <laughs> what else is new? But, uh, you know, today I said I was doing some classwork earlier. One of my assignments that I was tackling today was to do uh, peer reviews on my classmates' homilies. So for our homiletics class, we're broken up into small groups of four. And within the small group, as we write our different homilies, as soon as we finish the first draft, we post it on a discussion board and the other three members of the group will review it. So I had to go through and review uh, my classmates' homilies today. And uh, they had some very good elements, all of them in their different homilies. One that stood out particularly was an image that uh, one of them used. The whole premise of his homily basically was, um, we can have sins that we are ignorant of, but everyone else knows them. <laughs> Much like we can have a stain on our shirt or something that we don't notice, but everyone else sees. <laughs> Interesting uh, and certainly true observation. And so in the homily, he used this image of the mirror, which is Christ. You know, as we might look in the mirror in the bathroom to uh, see the stain on our shirt and, and clean ourselves up. <laughs> so we also gaze into the mirror, which is Christ in order to see more clearly our sins. And then uh, he goes on to describe what you do with your sins then. And he has a wonderful call to action, <laughs> inviting people to make a good examination of conscience and go to confession. But I was particularly struck by the mirror, Christ as mirror. In fact, it reminded me of a passage that I like very much from St. Catherine of Siena. I remember reading this over the summer as I was sitting beside the sea on uh, somewhere on the Oregon coast, um, 
what's that little town called? Rockaway Beach, way up north. We were there for our seminarian retreat. So I had an early morning prayer session sitting by the sea. Um, and uh, anyway, this is the passage from the Dialogues of St. Catherine. In the gentle mirror of God, the soul sees her own dignity. That through no merit of hers, but by his creation, she is the image of God. And in the mirror of God's goodness, she sees as well her own unworthiness, the work of her own sin. So it reminds me also, before I delve more deeply into that beautiful quote, the image of the mirror also reminds me of a favorite saying of St. John Paul II, uh, that Christ alone reveals man to himself. By gazing upon Christ, we gain self-knowledge, which is sort of paradoxical. You think, one, one, one at least would think that the way to gain self-knowledge is by the inward turn, by contemplating um, my own soul, <laughs> my own history, memories, tendencies, habits, etc., etc. To be sure, there's a place for all of that. I'm not discrediting any of that. Nonetheless, there is this spiritual truth that by gazing upon Christ, there is a self-knowledge that we gain, which cannot be gained simply by gazing upon ourselves. Because Christ alone, John Paul II says, reveals man to himself in his deepest essence, at the deepest level of his being. And this is because human beings are made in the image and the likeness of God. And um, therefore, we must contemplate God, who is our model, our prototype, if you want, if we are to understand what we're made for. Um, yeah, you can only understand the image by understanding the model. And Christ is the definitive revelation of God. Um, in Christ, God has, has spoken his one word and he has no more to say. He said everything in the incarnation of his Son, the person of Jesus Christ. So, we gaze upon Christ as if into a mirror. And what do we see? St. Catherine says we see two things. We see, on the one hand, our immense, really infinite dignity. And this is a point I suggested to my friend he could bring out a little bit more in his homily. Yes, we see our sinfulness. That's the second thing St. Catherine says. And that's well established in our spiritual tradition. Um, this is the common experience of the saints. As they draw nearer to Christ and they become objectively holier and holier, uh, more and more united to God, they become more conscious of their own sinfulness. That's why, for example, St. Paul um, at a point in his life after his conversion, when he's probably in the heights of mystical union with God, he calls himself the first and foremost among all sinners. <laughs> and most of the saints have similar expressions. Um, and so, well, this is the reason why. As you draw closer to Christ and gaze upon him, um, and, and even as we become more like him ourselves, we're closer configured to him, well, the parts of us that remain undivinized, 
unchristified, the parts of us that are still weak and wounded and inclined towards earthly things and, and uh, you know, sinful and all the rest, those parts stand out all the more in contrast. And so the saints tend to uh, be more conscious of their own sinful inclinations and tendencies than the rest of us. So that's certainly all true. But I think St. Catherine has a very beautiful insight here, which is we don't only see our sinfulness more clearly when we gaze upon Christ, but we also see our dignity. And this is another point that John Paul II also emphasizes when he says, look, this is a paraphrase. He doesn't say, look, (laughs) but he says, the deepest truth about you is not your sinfulness. The deepest truth about you is the Father's love for you. And the love of God is the source of our human dignity because we are made in his image and likeness and we are beloved as his chosen sons and daughters. Human beings have an immense dignity greater than any other created creature or thing in the cosmos. We are like princes and princesses walking about on the earth, sons and daughters of the king, God, the King. And as we are made in His image and likeness, within the whole created order, uh, we alone occupy a unique uh, place, a unique position um, at the top of the hierarchy of creatures. Well, you might say beneath the angels, but (laughs) within all of visible material creation, human beings are at the very apex. Because we alone image God in basically two ways. Like God, we have a free will, and like God, we have an intellect. With our intellect, we can know, and with our will, we can love. And so Father Sam Weber, another professor, this professor of mine earlier who had this great definition of sacrifice, also says, there's only two things worth doing in life, to know the truth and to be in love. So as we gaze into Christ, the mirror in whom alone we come to know the truth about ourselves, yes, we recognize our sinfulness and we can be grateful for that because it's not not a condemnation that we find when we gaze into Christ and see our sins. Rather, we see our sins in the light of his merciful gaze. He looks at us with great love, like he looked at the young man in the gospel who comes to him and says, how can I be perfect? (laughs) Before Jesus tells him what to do, he looks at him with great love. He looks at us in the same way. So yes, we see our sins in the light of his love and mercy, and we can then strive to correct them and to uh, continue to imitate him more and more. But we also see the truth about our human dignity, the truth about our immense value, As God says in the prophet Isaiah, you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. So friends, just a little reflection at the end of this podcast, um, and an invitation perhaps in your own prayer. What does it mean to gaze into Christ as a mirror? How do we do it? (laughs) It all sounds very beautiful, beautiful spirituality, but how do we put it into practice? Well, I will say it's very simple. That doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. This sort of thing takes practice sometimes, but in principle, it's very simple. You enter into prayer. So 
I presume that you will probably already have your own practices and ways of entering into prayer. Um, you enter into recollection. You maybe will begin, you know, slowing down your breathing, closing your eyes, finding a comfortable position. You might pray with some words of scripture. You might even do something like pray as of the rosary or a, a favorite um, vocal prayer repeated um, several times like the Jesus prayer or the surrender prayer, something like that. And you gradually enter into the presence of God, become aware of his presence there with you. And um, become aware that it is God who dwells within the depths of our souls. He's always waiting for us. And as soon as we go to seek him in prayer, we find that he's already been seeking us. <laughs> he's been waiting with great anticipation for us to turn up and to turn our attention to him. And he wants to have a conversation. And so then as we begin to come into his presence and, and aware that he is there with us, then simply turn to him with your will. If it's helpful, you might try to imagine or envision Christ there with you. Some people find this very easy and very helpful. Personally, it, it, a few times in prayer I've been able to do this, but most of the time it does not come naturally to me. What comes more naturally to me is the kind of prayer St. Therese talks about, which she says is a surge of the heart uh, towards heaven, a simple look of love. And so, just as you would, if you were sitting with someone that you love very, very much, another human being. <laughs> Christ is a divine person with a human nature, not a human being. So see, a little theological gotcha there. So, <laughs> just as you would if you were sitting with another human person, uh, turn your will towards Christ, the lover of your soul. You can express to him in quiet uh, interior words or uh, whispers, maybe how much that you love him or how much you desire to love him. Simply tell him what's in your heart. Pour out your heart before Christ. And then once you have said all that there is to say, well then naturally you must fall silent. Uh, words only last for so long after all. And so then at whatever point that you find there's nothing more coming to your lips. You don't have to force yourself to say many beautiful things. Simply allow yourself then to rest in the presence of the Beloved. And it's there in His presence, in the rest which prayer provides, where we are suffused as if by a, a secret wellspring with the love of God. And it's in those moments when the love of God is filling us up um, secretly, as if from some deep interior source that we cannot see or locate on a map. It's in those moments that Christ does very often reveal us to ourselves. We come to know ourselves better as we are engaged in gazing upon Him, loving Him, and letting ourselves be loved by Him. Those are often the moments, in my experience, that I have had great revelations <laughs> about myself, <laughs> convictions about sinfulness, things to repent of, to amend, to bring up in confession, people I need to apologize to or reconcile with, things of that nature. But also, just as we're talking about with St. Catherine, also beautiful revelations of the love of God for me, 
um, the truth about my identity as a son of the Father and coming to know that not only with the intellect but on the level of the heart. So basically what I'm saying here is if we wish to gaze into Christ the mirror and to come to know ourselves better, all that we have to do is enter into a dialogue of prayer with Him and allow Him to speak. Um, because gazing into Christ the mirror is only another analogy for entering into dialogue with Christ, which is what prayer is. And it's also the wonderful title of St. Catherine's book, <laughs> The Dialogues. So that's my invitation for all of you this week um, in one of your holy hours or any time that you set aside for prayer with the Lord. Um, gaze into the mirror that is Christ. Ask him what he would like to reveal to you about yourself this week. All right, that should just about do it for today. Septuagesima, a.k.a. Super Bowl Sunday. I pray that you all have a great week, and I ask your continued prayers for me as I prepare to receive candidacy this Wednesday. And know that I'm praying for all of you. Um, as I uh, will pray my rosary tomorrow, I will be remembering all of you listeners to In Your Embrace podcast in a particular way, asking the Lord to bless you and your loved ones this week and always. Until next time, friends, may Almighty God bless us, protect us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Amen.